Um, we're working through a series looking through this book of Ecclesiastes. And um, if you haven't been able to keep up with the series, you can download it. Uh, but there are various stepping stones as you go through the book. And we're coming at, uh, this afternoon to one of the significant stepping stones, which really helps us uh, to see. Uh, it shines a light onto the way we think as people uh, and exposes what our real attitudes are underneath that kind of veneer that we put up for everybody to see, which is what we tend to do. Uh, and, and I suppose it's centered around the idea of our attitude in certain places shapes uh, the way we really behave in other places. That sounds complicated. It's a lot easier as we go through it. I, I was reflecting on this when it was um, a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, in, a, in Gladstone's Library, which is in North Wales, and uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful place. Absolutely fantastic. William Gladstone uh, bequeathed the whole of his library and he built this spectacular building. Uh, and you go into the library and it's a, bit like a, it's a bit like a Harry Potter kind of library. You know, oak panels and spiral wooden staircases and racks and racks of books uh, and ladders which slide along so that you can get to the highest books right up at the top. Uh, but what really hit me when I went into the library was how different it was as a library experience to the other library experiences that I've um, been engaged with over the past few months. I went into Chester Library, University of Chester Library, and it's kind of buzzing and it's bubbling and it's people chatting and computers being used and conversations going on. Not quite so many books because a whole load of the information is now electronic uh, and people are just working in there. It's a great space uh, and then you go through another room and that's where all of the books are on all of the shelves. But this is a library. Uh, and it was a buzzing kind of place. And I went into Gladstone's library, and it was... And you sit down, and there's a kind of notice on the desk informing you not to speak, not to hold conversations. If you want to talk, please go back outside. Please make sure that the, your computer is on silent. And if you are going to use headphones, please make sure that they're really quiet. I thought, well, to be honest, you can use really quiet headphones in here because it is so silent. Now, some of you might be thinking, that is just like the epitome of the beauty of a library. <laughs> you know, you might be thinking, that sounds amazing. And I thought, Do you know what, I really like the new library experience. I like the buzz. But I thought, they might be trying to kind of make me behave appropriately in this library. They might be wanting me to be quiet, uh, and I was. I wasn't, I wasn't singing to the songs on my headphones. Uh, I was quiet. I behaved myself. You'll be pleased to know. But, but I really wasn't bought into it. You know, I didn't go in there and love it for the experience. Uh, and it really exposed that, to me, that for all that I might have wanted uh, to go into the library, I really didn't engage in that place. I think there's a lot of that as we work through this little section here. But there's another significant change that takes place, and it happens in our, in our opening verse. So the first block that we're going to look at 
is we're going to look at the significance of God's house. Look at what it says there right at the beginning. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. If you've been with us as we've journeyed through this uh, book up to now, one of the things that we said right at the beginning is that there are kind of uh, literary cues, there are little hints of how to think about each section. And we've had the idea of under the heavens or under the sun, this idea of living as though God doesn't exist. This is what it's like. It's meaningless, it's meaningless, la, 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 la. That's the kind of story that's been going on up to now. Now we have this big change where we're entering into God's house. It's kind of like saying we're going from meaninglessness to meaningfulness. That's the switch that takes place as we take this step into God's house. We don't get it the significance, because we just read it as words on the page. But for the people who first read this, who first understood what was going on here, those words, guard your steps when you go to the house of God, would have been charged with massive meaning. Absolutely massive meaning. Guard your steps. It's not saying... Be careful when you walk up to the house of God because it's a dodgy path. (laughs) It's not saying that. The guard your steps it's saying is you need to be really clear in your head as you are stepping into that place because it dominates Jerusalem. That's what God's house did. 1889, the Eiffel Tower was constructed in Paris. Uh, Some of you, I'm sure, will have actually seen it. I would be surprised if anybody in here hasn't at least seen a picture of the Eiffel Tower. It's one of those iconic buildings in the world, isn't it? The Eiffel Tower, when it was first built, uh, they, they said that you could see the Eiffel Tower from anywhere in Paris. I'm not sure whether that was quite true, but the sentiment was that the Eiffel Tower dominated Paris in such an incredible way that it spoke to the whole of the city. It said something about Paris. I didn't really understand this until I did a little bit of reading about it. The Eiffel Tower was built for the Exposition Universale. Uh, So Paris uh, held this world exhibition. And part of the building of the Eiffel Tower was the significance of this exhibition. But it was also built in 1889 to mark the 100-year anniversary of the French Revolution. Wow. It was this statement. It's kind of like saying, climb up to the top of this great tower, look out, and look at what you now see compared to a hundred years ago. If you went up to the Eiffel Tower a hundred years ago, even though it didn't exist, you would have looked out at monarchy and the, the tyranny of the monarchy. You would have looked out at peasants. You would have looked out at the overpowering domination of that terrible church. And now look at us. You go up to the top of the Eiffel Tower and you look at 
at freedom and liberty and fraternity, you look out and you see the success of the human rational dream. That is powerful, isn't it? That is nothing. That is just nothing compared to the significance of the temple in Jerusalem. It was massive because it wasn't just a symbol of an idea. It was the place where God, the unseen God, made His presence with His people. It was the place, the the symbolic connection of heaven and earth. It was where God dwelt with His people. That's what the temple was. That's amazing, isn't it? It's not just saying, look at these ideals. It's saying this is where God is present with His people. Where? In Jerusalem, in Israel. Why is that significant? Because it's at the junction of the three continents. Africa, Asia, and Europe. If you travel from one to the other, you go through that that location in the world. Isn't that amazing? It's, It's this massive display of God is present with this people. So, when you go up to that place, guard your steps because you need to remember where you are going. This is a place, the focus of this place is just filled with hope for you. This is the place of forgiveness. This is the place where you can be reconciled to God. This is the place where you can say, we are truly God's people living in God's place under God's law, and we are happy for it. That's how big the temple was. That's how significant it was. Do you see the step that's taken place here in this book? On the one hand, it's been going on about riches and searching after wisdom and such, searching out after all of these things in this world. And it says you can, you can pursue that as much as you like, but at the end of the day, it's meaningless. And then you can think about this. God present with His people. Which is the bigger? Which is the most significant? Which is eternal in its impact? Which is the thing which is really what you need to think about in your life? That's the switch that takes place. And therefore, because of what it is, you really, really need to think about how to live wisely in the light of that place. It's like, it's like saying... All that we've been talking about up to now is imagining that God doesn't exist. And now we take this step into a place which says, but God does exist. But God is present. Now, which are we going to think about as how we should shape our lives? So that's the significance of God's place. Now, now do, you see, do you see why I mentioned about the library early on? <laughs> I could walk into the library, and I could be really quiet, and I could behave myself, 
and I could look really appropriate in that library. But I was not engaged with that library, not one little jot, really. I thought it was a, a kind of, it was a nice looking place, if you like that kind of thing. It, it was, you know, it was special in lots of ways. But I wasn't really engaged. And now we look at this and we say, when you go to the house of God, are you going to engage? Are you going to see what it is? Or are you going to put up a front? Are you going to create a veneer that makes it look as though you are in the place, but you're not really in the place? You're there physically, but you're not there up here. That's the significance of God's house. And so we move from the significance of it to our attitude towards it. What's our attitude, therefore, in God's house? And here's the thing, point number one. Our attitude in the house of God can be either genuine or false. It can be genuine or false. We can actually go into the house of God. We're going to talk about the temple and the house of God and all that. And uh, let me just say right now, we're, we're not in the temple now, okay? We're just, just, we'll come back to it, but we're not in the temple now. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to it. But we can go through the motions of being in the house of God, but not really be there. So what should our attitude be? It should be like this. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not do that, know that they do wrong. Here's the kind of picture. I'm walking up to the temple, and I've got my lamb on my shoulders that is going to be the sacrifice, or I've got my doves in my hand, which are going to be the sacrifice. And I come to, as I climb up the steps, I come to the place of purification. And there's, there's there's water that I go through and cleanse myself, and I kind of march up. I've got them in my hand, trudge through the water, get up through the steps the other side, wander into the temple. There's my sacrifice. Let's have a big conversation. Let's have a great time. We're all in here, uh, and then I go out. Have I engaged at all in that? Or do I go up, guarding my steps? conscious of where I'm heading, silent with my lips, attentive with my hearing, because I am going into a place which I don't shape, it shapes me. What a difference. I go to a place that shapes me rather than me shaping that place. That's what this verse is all about. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. <laughs> wow, that is just, that is so powerful, isn't it? To offer the sacrifice of fools. The writer is actually saying, do you know, there's some people who are going up, they're offering sacrifices, and it is foolish. They're just fools. They're going through the motions and it doesn't mean a jot because their attitude 
is not connected with where they are. Not one little bit. So that's the first thing. It can be genuine or it can be false. It is based on, number two, our acknowledgement of the godliness of God. (laughs) That sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? The godliness of God. Look at what it says. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Initially, that sounds very crushing, but it isn't. It's actually the most amazingly securing hope that we could ever imagine. If we go into a place and we have to speak and prove ourselves in that place then we have a contribution to make because the place in and of itself is weak. (laughs) But if I can go into a place and I can not utter much from my mouth and I can be silent and I can feed, take in rather than give out, I am in an amazing securing place. I am in a place of security and hope. Why? Because God is in heaven and I'm on earth. That's the difference. God, this verse is saying, is vast, is beyond anything that we could imagine, is majestic, is astounding. Go out of the temple doors in the middle of the night, look up to the sky, look at the stars, look at the vastness of the universe, look at how incredible it is, and it is a jot compared with the majesty of God. Do you know, that is just a great place just to rest, isn't it? It's a place to rest. You know, sometimes we do that, don't we? Beautiful summer night. It's nice and warm. I know it's a distant memory right at the moment, isn't it? They will come back, hopefully. Beautiful summer night. You're on your holiday, on a beach maybe, or up out in the mountains. It's gone dark. You look up at the sky. What do you sometimes do? It's great just to lie back, to look up, and do nothing. Just do nothing. You don't speak. I can't make the stars better by speaking about them. They're just great as they are. But I can look up and just rest in that majesty. But they don't feed me. They don't give me anything in the way that God does. There isn't anything that they bring other than their presence. And yet, going into the house of God, going into the place of God's presence, listening to God speak, is a place of joyful rest. It's a great place. It's a place just to lie back and to listen 
and to be comforted to know it's okay because God is in heaven. We mentioned earlier on in the service about some of the devastating things that are going on in the world right now. You know, many of those things in human terms, there is, there is no answer to them. That doesn't mean we don't do... It doesn't mean that we don't do anything. Of course, we seek to help where we can, but, but we can't resolve it. Where's our hope? It's our, our hope is actually that God is in heaven. That, that, that is massive. It's not a trite phrase. Our hope is that the eternal God is in heaven even though this is going on right now. It is not lost to Him. It is not outside of His control. It is just there. That is our hope. So it's based on the acknowledgement of the godliness of God. Look at the way He contrasts it. It is contrasted with the godlessness of emptiness. So he, so he brings back in some of the thoughts that he's been going through up to now. Uh, dreams and, and, and ideas and hopes and ambitions and all of that kind of thing. A dream comes when there are many cares. They are not good dreams, are they? When there are many cares. A dream comes when there are many cares. And many words mark the speech of a fool. I think dreams. What, what's he getting at here? So, so I turn to the the kind of the oracle that is Supertramp, and some of you might not even know who Supertramp is, but they did. They were quite a big band back in the seventies, nineteen seventy four. They brought out a song called Dreamer, and it says this: Dreamer, you know you are a dreamer. Actually, these are probably the most profound words in the whole song. The rest of it's junk. Uh, Dreamer, you know you are a dreamer. Well, can you put your hands in your head? Oh, no. It's kind of saying you can dream these things. You can dream them. But can you put your hands inside your head and take those dreams out and make them real? Can you make the dream into something tangible? No, you can't. You can't do it. It's a dream. Do you, see, do you see the way he's contrasting this? He's saying our dreams are meaningless emptiness compared to the security of the knowledge of God in heaven. Which one are we going to rely on? Are you a dreamer? Or, or, or are, you, are you a fool? Because the other way that we could, I suppose it, it, it speaks to every one of us. How, how do we respond to the challenge? Do we kind of retreat and dream? <laughs> or do we kind of roll in there with loads of words, loads of ideas, loads of talk? That's the very human response, isn't it? It's saying we can either step back and dream or we can go in with loads of speech, loads of talk, the words of a fool blabbering. Talk, you are all talk. You're just all talk. You've heard that phrase 
so many times, this is the origin. You're all talk. You just wrap it in, but you can't do anything about it. And there's the contrast. You've got this life that's set up. Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. How, are you, how therefore are we going to live our lives? Are we going to live meaningless lives with many dreams and lots of words? Or are we going to live lives shaped by this step into the presence of God? This acknowledgement that God exists. I'm reading a fascinating book at the moment on the uh, the history of the narcos in Colombia. Some of you might have even seen the uh, the Netflix uh, series Narcos. Really interesting story of Pablo Escobar. This guy w- was making billions of dollars, literally billions of dollars in Colombia. The money that he was making in cash terms was so massive that he had to dig holes in the ground and bundle it up on pallets of money and put it in the ground and cover it up for him to launder the money. He was making so much cash. It was astounding, the level of money that he was making. It was ridiculous. He could do anything. (laughs) But I also looked at it and I thought, Man, you get to the end of your life, his brother. I mean, the guy was just, some of the stuff that he did to control was just horrible. He was just a violent, vicious man. But he gets to the end of his life, and that is just gone. It's just meaningless. It is utterly meaningless. It mean anything, that life. Because it has been lived imagining that God doesn't exist. It's been lived imagining that now is everything. Which life are we going to live? A life which sees an eternity or a life which says that no, now is everything. There's our choice. So we've been talking about, I said we'd come back to it, we talked about the idea of the temple and going up to the house of God and all of that kind of thing, and I said that we're not in the temple now, but well, actually, we kind of are. We kind of are. We're not in the temple, so this really doesn't look even like a church most of the time, never mind a temple. But there's been a change that has taken place. And this is why I think this little section is absolutely massive for us today. Because we, we no longer go up to the temple to see the contrast. Something has changed. The temple no longer exists. And yet, in another way, the temple continues. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst. Where's the temple? 
here is the temple. This is where God dwells. His temple is now not a single building on a hill in Jerusalem. His temple is all of His people gathered together wherever they representatively gather in this way, and the gathering of all of God's people across the whole of the face of the earth. We are God's temple. Why? Because it's where God's Spirit dwells. It's where God's Spirit dwells. That's why the temple was significant, wasn't it? It was on the top of the hill in Jerusalem, looking out a bit like the Eiffel Tower, everywhere in Jerusalem you could see the temple because that's where God dwelt. And now the Bible is saying the shift that has taken place is the temple is you because that's where God's Spirit dwells. You, me, together are the temple of God. Here's the thing. Do we walk into this gathering, this representation of the temple of God, and do we arrive with a flippant mindset, which says, it's more about who I connect with on a human level, and I forget about I'm here to connect with God. I'm here to worship God. That's what it's about. Do I come in with flippant sacrifice and with closed ears? Or do I come in with a quiet mouth and an attentive mind and heart? With ears that are saying, what happens here now affects the whole of my life out there. Because that's exactly what it goes on to say. Further on, we see, we see where it's... Uh, let's get it up on the screen. Go on to verse 4. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. So here's the thing. Somebody's gone up to the temple. They've made a promise to God. And then they've wandered out of the temple. And they've not kept the vow that they've made to God. In other words, the life that they lived out in the world when they're away from the temple of God has borne no significance to the life that they lived when they were in the temple. In other words, they had no real connection with the place that they were in. They never really believed it was significant. They said words and then they went out and said, oh, don't hold me to it because I never really meant it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. Our attitudes towards God when we gather in worship are the very foundation of our attitudes when we live our faith out, when we go into our daily lives. It is not the other way around. Our attitudes when we worship God together are the foundation of how we live our faith when we are living our lives day by day. That is massive, isn't it? Now, how do we respond to that? I think it can either crush us or we can be challenged by it. I think sometimes we do need to be challenged by it. We need to realize the significance of what it means to gather and to worship 
so that our lives are shaped by what we say, by what we sing, by the things that they're the they're not they're the vows that we're making before God. They are they are not flippant words when we gather together and we sing words and we say things before God. I give everything to you. Take my life. Whatever those words might be, they are not flippant words. They are words that we are declaring in worship before God. And then we go and we live totally differently to that. That's a massive challenge, and some of us need to be challenged. And then some of us, we could be crushed by that. And we could say, I know, I know, I come in and I sing. And then I go out and I don't live like that. I am utterly crushed by it. And if that's what you're thinking, I want you in your hearts right now to sing out in praise. Because that is God that's working in you to see that. (laughs) It's a problem that we need to be challenged, but if we're feeling it deeply... It's because God is working in our hearts. That's what Jesus says. He says there's a tax collector who went into the temple and when everybody else was declaring these massive prayers, speaking out really loudly, you know the kind of words, these big words that we're talking about in the earlier part of this verse? He goes off to one side and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's his attitude. And Jesus says this. He says, which of those who go into the temple either declaring loud prayers or going in saying, God have mercy on me, a sinner, which one's blessed? And everybody knew the answer. (laughs) They knew it. They couldn't say anything about it. They just knew. It's the one who says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. The tax collector, the one who shouldn't be even deserving any sense of blessing from God. Why? Because he might not have looked right on the outside, but his heart was right before God. Because when he came into the significance of the presence of God in the temple, he knew what it was about. So if we feel crushed where we say, I just so want to keep the vows that I make before God in the songs that I sing, in the words that I read, I'm silent before him. I listen to his words speaking to me and they crush me because I can't keep up with those demands. We say, praise God, because we never, never can. But we have an older brother who did. And therein is the difference. We have a a father whose son was sacrificed so that we might look at him and we can say, My life is made good, not in my life, but in his life. And the crushing that I feel is because God is speaking to me. And I'm hearing those words. And I thank you, God, for speaking like that. Live wise. I think Micah 6.8 sums this up. As we leave... How are we going to go out and how are we going to live? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. He's shown you. So don't go out thinking, what am I to do now? 
He's shown you what to do. What does God require of you? That is the biggest question that you could ever ask in the whole of your life. What does God require of me now? He wants you to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before your God. The God that you walk humbly before is Jesus because that's the God who is present with us. But if we do those three things if we make that our absolute passionate commitment every day, I just want to do justly. I want to love mercy. And I want to walk humbly before God every step of the day. We, We are blessed. We are blessed.